And we're picking up the story of Gideon this week. So Judges, pretty early on in the Bible. Judges chapter 7. And we're diving in the story of Gideon. Gideon has been called by God to be this great war leader, uh, to fight against the Midianites who've conquered the country of Israel. Israel, you might remember, is God's holy land for his people in the Old Testament. So it's meant to be a little picture of heaven on earth. But unfortunately, it's all gone wrong. His people turned away, worshipped other gods, and the Midianites, the enemies, have swept in. And as we left the story last week, Gideon, who'd been very, very nervous about becoming this general, fighting against God's, force, uh, against God's enemies, he'd been encouraged and encouraged, and he turned the corner, it seemed, to be ready to go into battle. So we're going to pick up the action. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit to us this morning. Gideon, Judges 7, verse 1. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I'll test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths was 300. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go down into the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that's in the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down. So the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. 
And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the 300 men, sorry, and Gideon and the 100 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands and the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hand the trumpets to blow and they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshitta towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Meholah and Taboth. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. We'll pause there. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father in heaven, these are your words. They are words that are holy and true, spirit-filled. We pray, therefore, that in your mercy you would send your spirit upon us now in order that we might understand, be transformed, be strengthened by your great and mighty works. In Jesus' names we ask. Amen. Um, how strong do you feel as a Christian? I guess many of you here would identify as Christians. How strong do you feel? If you're kind of scoring yourself out of 10, how, you know, how well you're going, how firm in the Lord you're walking. Particularly, think about it in relation to two areas. One, holiness. How well are you doing? How strongly are you fighting the battle against the enemy that, that remains within us? As you know, once you become a Christian, you are fully forgiven. You walk outside and get hit by the proverbial bus straight to heaven, even if the last thing you do is swear and scream because of the grace of Lord Jesus. But sin remains within us. The power of sinners is not yet totally driven out. Children, it's like your heart is a little castle. And although Jesus is king of the castle, he hasn't yet driven out all the baddies. There are little soldiers who've crept in, trying to cause mischief, trying to lead you away. And your call is to fight with Jesus against the sin within. How is that fight going? And what about the other one? The other main sort of battle we face as Christians in our own era, where we're not fighting with swords and shields, it is the battle for mission, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Again, how strong do you feel in that area? Uh, most of us, if we're honest, feel like total failures. Total failures. We know what we should do but we become entrapped by sin, whether it's a particular pattern of sin or whether it's just a case of bouncing from one to the next to the next and never really breaking through and experience the joy of the Lord or the peace that transcends understanding. When it comes to, to mission, we know what's meant to be going on, but we kind of hope someone else will step up and, and do it for us. If I, let, let me just extend the question a bit further. I, I, I hope, and uh, it's been a pleasure over the, the previous few weeks and months, to see many of them among us who wouldn't yet call themselves Christians. If that's you, you're so welcome here this morning. But, but let me ask you a kind of similar question, a question about fear. How, just how confident do you feel facing life in general? How, how much has fear got a hold of your heart? 
At the end of the day, there's just so much out there, isn't there, that is stronger than us. So much that we know if we go head to head, we're going to lose. There are so many what if questions that keep us awake at night. What if? What if I stay single? What if I get ill? What if a loved one dies? What if I don't pass the exams? What if I don't get the job? What if? And it's fear, isn't it? All the time, fear, fear, fear. I've got another what if for a stay. What if it didn't have to be like that? What if there was an answer to all these fears that so easily crush us, keeping us awake at night, keeping the sinking feeling in the bottom of our stomach? Gideon, the story of Gideon tells us two things about God that I want to get clear. And then I want to see, I hope we'll all see this morning, how those two truths about God are incredibly good news for us in our weakness and in our fear. Two things very simply. First of all, God's great concern is for his own glory. It's the first thing we're seeing this morning, children, on your sheets. God's great concern is for his own glory. Now, that might not seem good news, but stay with me. We're in verses one through eight. Let's get the story straight. Uh, Gideon is ready to go into battle. He's called God's people to him. He's ready to go. And as the story starts, if you do the maths, the story of Gideon lasts three chapters, so I'm not going to read it all. But if you do the maths, um, there are 135,000 Midianites. It's kind of like two Wembley stadiums. And there are, to start with, according to verse 3, 32,000 Israelites. Okay, so 135,000 Midianites, 32,000 Israelites, God's people. So to start with, the odds are four to one. If you're one of God's people, you've got to take down four enemies just to survive the day. Okay. So at this stage, you're probably feeling a bit nervous. I look out here, I think, you know, would I be able to take out Coca and Ben and Jun and Flo? And well, possibly those four. But there are other groupings, I'd be nervous. But what does God do? What does he do? Well, no, says verse, God in verse 2. There's too many. And Gideon's thinking, yeah, there are too many. Why don't you get rid of some of these Midianites? And God says, no, no, there's too many of you. Four to one is two good odds. Let's, let's get that down a bit. Go, go and say to the people, anyone who's scared can go home. That's actually a, a principle God always uses in the battles. It's there in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, it's one of the kind of rules about Israelite warfare. Before the battle, you say, if anyone's scared, you can go home. So... Gideon goes and says it, and 22,000 to the 32,000 say, Brill, thanks very much, Gideon. Good luck, chaps. We're off. And they head home. What are the odds now? 10,000 left. Now it's come 13, 14 to 1. You're going to have to take out 14 Midianite soldiers to survive. And you can imagine the Israelites at this stage, the fear is really building. This is real warfare, it's not play fighting. And God comes back and says, too many. And Gideon says, yeah, you're telling me. And God says, no, 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 still too many of you. Too many of you. And so we get this strange episode with a lapping. It's not totally clear kind of what the difference is, but all the, all the Israelites, all God's people are told to go down to the water and drink. And God says, there's going to be two ways they drink. I think best guess, some of them kind of pick up the water and sort of pick it in their hands and drink like that. And some of them just sort of stick their heads in the water. I don't think there's any significance to the difference. It just turns out that one group who kind of lap the water from their hands, there's 300 of them, and all the other thousands and thousands do it the other way. So God says, split them into two groups. And Gideon does. And then God says, right, 
Just keep the 300. Everyone else can go home. What are the odds now? 450 to 1. There are something like 150, maybe just over 150 people in this room. Times that by three. And imagine we all go out to the car park and it's me versus you. Three times you. Again, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I might get a few kicks in, you know, take out a few kids. But (laughs) big picture, you're going down, aren't you? 450 to one. Why is he doing it? What is he doing it? The keys, verse two, did you notice it? The people of you are too many, the Lord said to Gideon, for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. Do you see what God's saying? I don't want you coming out the other side of this battle, which you're definitely going to win, by the way, coming out the other side of the battle and saying, we did it. Well done us. Flexing as you go home in front of the mirror, talking to your wife about how many Midianites you got. It's impressing the kids. And No, no, no. So it's got all the glory in this battle needs to come to me. And that is why he weakens his people. Now, that might sound incredibly odd at this stage. Stick, stick with me. But you see the principle. God is concerned that he gets the glory. And that is why the, the weakness of his people is going to be good news. Again, if it sounds odd, stay with me. But already there's a glimmer of hope, isn't there? If you're someone who feels particularly weak, trapped in sin, useless, crushed by life, then actually you see already that your weakness is not a bad thing from God's point of view. It's not going to be an impediment. It might be exactly what he's looking for. First principle, God's commitment to his own glory. But the second one, the second principle is God's determination to save by grace alone his determination to save by grace alone or or children to put that another way God's determination to save all by his own all by himself this is verses 15 to 23 the actual battle so again children stay with the story what's going on there's 300 of them left and they're told you're going to be the ones going into battle and, and God has told them they're going to win, but it doesn't look very likely. And so you imagine them gathering a, a, around Gideon. A, and they come to him. How's this going to work? Perhaps God is going to kind of supercharge us, give us a magic potion like in the Asterix books, or, or just make us super strong and we'll go down there and absolutely trounce them. Well, no. Perhaps God's going to come and send fiery angelic chariots to ride through the enemy. Gabriel and the archangel Michael and the seraphim and the cherubim and all that lot coming down and just, no. Well, at the very least, perhaps God is going to give us immense armour, flaming swords, bows and arrow like Legolas in Lord of the Rings. Children, I brought along what, what they got. Imagine going into battle. What does Gideon give them? Gives them a horn. Okay, a trumpet. He gives them a lamp, a little lamp, and he tells them to put it in a bucket. Now, children, what would you feel like going into battle? Okay, there's 450 people outside about to fight you. You can have a bucket, Phoebe, a light, and John, you can have a trumpet. What would you feel like? You'd feel very silly, wouldn't you? That's a good answer. <laughs> You'd feel silly, and I suspect terrified. What use is a, a saxophone, a bucket, and a candle against four hundred? Oh, sorry, against four hundred and fifty each. Israelite 
um, sorry, Midianite soldiers. And yet, and yet, look what happens. Verse 19. Uh, they go down, and it's the middle of the night, the middle watch, it's dark. And Gideon splits the, the groups into hundreds and tells them to surround the Midianite camp. So they sneak down the mountain. They're up high. The Midianites are in the valley. And it looks like the Midianites are totally bossing it. They're described as like sand on the seashore. That was the promise given to Israel. You'll be like sand on the seashore. But it looks like the enemy has got all the blessing. So, so Gideon and the men, they surround the camp. And then on Gideon's signal, they blow the, the, the horns. I'm not going to do that. They smash the jars that have got the the lamps in and they scream, they shout, a sword for the Lord, a sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. And total mayhem breaks out. Verse 21, every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade, against all the army. In other words, the Midianites just start fighting themselves. Uh, probably what happens is normally a, a trumpet and a, a light would be at the head of a, a division. And so when they see 300, they think there's 300 divisions, 300 armies coming at us and totally panic. Middle of the night, you can imagine them. Some of them coming back from being on sentry duty. Some of them are just sort of waking up in their tents and it's carnage. And, there's, and they just start swinging their swords around at everybody, kill each other, and then a load of them run away. Total mayhem. What's the key verse here? Verse 22. The Lord said every man's sword against his comrade god did it god alone has saved children again think think about it what did the soldiers actually do to beat the enemy nothing blew some trumpets smashed a bucket lit a candle that's all they did and then they stood still and god did all the saving that is all the way always the way god works He does all the saving. He's not a co-saviour. He's not someone who is willing to chip in as long as you make the first step. He's not a, a crutch to help you along. He is the entire package. When he decides to save, he will do everything from A through Z. You contribute nothing. This is what the Bible means by grace. To be saved by grace alone is to be saved by God alone. There's no such thing as grace. It's not like grace is a smoky gas or something that kind of floats down from heaven to save you. It's just a a way of saying God alone, on his own, by himself, saves. And this is the pattern not just with Gideon, but right the way through the Bible. If you've got a Bible in the laps, this battle is referenced once more in the Old Testament. Flick on to Isaiah chapter 9. So you can go forwards in the Bible, past the Psalms, Isaiah chapter 9. It's worth keeping a finger in Gideon because we will just turn back there a little later. Isaiah 9. And Isaiah, who's many hundreds of years after Gideon, about 500 or so years after Gideon, and 700-ish years before Jesus, Isaiah is prophesying, he's looking down at the tunnel of history and he's seeing, he's seeing what God's going to do one day. Let me read from verse uh, two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. 
So there's people full of fear. They're living in darkness and fear. They're carrying away. But a light has come. Verse 3, you, you, God, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they're glad when they divide, divide the spoil. You've brought them from darkness to joy, from darkness to light, from sadness, tears uh, uh, of sadness to tears of joy. On it goes. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. You have smashed up the people who are keeping them down. You've set them free. Here's the phrase, as on the day of Midian. Now, whatever Isaiah is talking about, it's going to be like the battle with Midian. Gideon's defeat of Midian. In other words, this rescuing people from darkness to light, from sorrow to joy... It, like that battle, is not going to be because the people are super strong and rescue themselves or make the first move or or buckle up and toughen up and man up and get going. No, God's going to do it all. But what is it? What is he talking about? Well, some of you perhaps recognize the reading. It's read so often at Christmas. Verse, skip down to verse six. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's talking about Jesus. God is going to come and rescue darkness to light, weeping to joy, by sending his son into the world, and his salvation, like the Gideon battle, is all going to be done by him, all of it, grace alone. That is a good news of the Christian faith, by the way. That God does everything, is willing to do everything. And, and that's why his concern for his glory is such good news. But it, it is right that God wants his own glory. He is the most glorious being. It would be weird if he sort of somehow promoted someone else's glory above his own. Imagine that the best, imagine you get it ill, okay, and you know the best doctor in Leeds lives next door to you. Okay, he's just the flat out best doctor. And you, you go round to him and say, Look, you know, who, who should I go to? And he knows he's the best place to save you. He knows he's the best doctor. But he goes, Oh, no, not, you know, I'm, not me. I'm, you know, I'm trying to be all humble. And, you know, and I'll send you, and send you to kind of a, a, a rubbish doctor. No, no, no. If you're the best, I want to know it. God is the best. He is the greatest. And so rightfully, he proclaims that. One of our problems as human beings is we're so focused on our own glory, living for ourselves, that we don't realise we were built to glorify God and therefore to enjoy knowing him as this great glorious being around whom we orbit. He is the sun, we are the planets, whereas we try and reverse it. But even leaving aside all the sorts of things you might talk about, about the goodness of God's glory, do you see how it's good news for our salvation? If he wants all the glory, all the credit, it means we're not going to have to do anything. God's concern for his glory grounds the fact that he will therefore save by grace alone. You can't have one without the other. This is good news. Here's the thing. We're all all on a kind of salvation project. We're all trying to save ourselves some way. Children, in your class at school, every single person in that class is religious. They all have a religion. Now, some of them might be Christians. Some of them might be Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus. But they all have a religion because we're all trying to save ourselves some way. Or oh, somehow. So think of um, think of a student flat last night. Okay, Saturday night, 
and um, what are we, a week or two into term, everyone's getting to know each other, and someone in the flat says, Let, let's go out in town, okay, let's go out in town, and we're going we're gonna to drink ourselves silly. And, and one of the flatmates says, to be honest, no, I'm a, I'm a Muslim, um, I, don't, I don't drink, uh, and actually it's prayer time, I'm going to stay in, and I'm going to pray. And the student who wants to go out drinking is like, oh, you're so dull, you're so boring, you're so enslaved, you're not free like me. You're so religious. What about you? And he turns to his other flatmate. And she says, no, I've got my first essay due and I really want to do well. I'm going to stay and work. And the guy says, whoa, you're working last night. You're working all day. You've been working all week. You haven't been out once. I know, I know, but I really want to nail this one. I'm going to keep going. And she stays in at a computer. And he thinks, oh, another, another Saturday. Stuck working at home. All these goody goodies. Well, who's the religious one in the flat? One stays and prays, one stays and works, one goes out on town and, and, and absolutely drinks the bar dry. They all are. They're all on different self-salvation projects, ways of proving to themselves that they're okay. One person does it religiously. Now I do my prayers, then that'll show that I'm a good person. That'll save me, that'll show that I've worth. A good person is somebody who prays. The next person is like, it doesn't believe in God or Allah or whatever, but, but work, work is what saves me. If I get good grades, then I have value, then I have meaning. That will make everything okay. And the third person, the one who goes out on town, they're just as religious. But they're doing it in a very secular way. The way to salvation, the way to life and joy, it is by oh, just getting drunk. Fourth person in the flat spends hours getting ready. Makeup, hair, whatever it may be. Well, the way life will be okay is if I'm seen as beautiful. On and on you could go. We're all at it. We're all at it. I read this week about an Australian model called Asena O'Neill. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Don't know. Um, she had well over half a million followers on Instagram. And... Um, she was a big star, apparently. I don't follow Instagram, so maybe you've heard of her, I don't know. Um, but then she had essentially a kind of public meltdown. She, she, she said this. She, she, she put up a, a kind of casual-looking selfie. Okay, you're a beautiful girl, obviously she's a model. Put up a kind of casual-looking selfie. And underneath it, she wrote this. Please like this photo. I put on makeup. I curled my hair. I wore a tight dress. I wore big, uncomfortable jewellery. I took over 50 shots until I got the one I thought you might like. And then I edited this one, this one selfie for ages on several apps, just so I could feel some social approval from you. The only thing that made me feel good this day was this photo. That is, I mean, fair play to her, that is bold and brutally honest, isn't it? And she deleted all her stuff after that, apparently came off it. What, what's she doing? The only thing that made me feel good this day was this photo and I need you to like it it's salvation by approval that's how I'm going to be okay that's what's going to make the darkness into light the tears into laughter we're all at it afterwards uh, that girl Asena I spoke about her coming off uh, social media and said this 16 year old Asena would have been like Hey girl, you have the dream life. Doesn't work in my accent, does it? Hey girl, you have the dream life. And then she said, so why do I feel so lost, lonely and miserable? Because any self-salvation project leaves you like that. 
whether you're trying to prove yourself by work, religion, looks, beauty, popularity, it leaves you. Well, it leaves you lonely, lost, ultimately, and miserable. Because deep down we know they won't work. None of these things are ultimate. None of these things are able to get us through the big challenges of life. And certainly none of them are able to get us through death. They are back-breaking hard work. And they will ultimately kill you. Unless you come to the God who says, let me do it all for you. See why grace is such good news? The story of Gideon is such good news. He, He doesn't say, if Gideon, you man up, work out for six months in the gym, then I might help you win. I might bring rest to your country. I might get rid of the enemies and bring you to peace. No, he says, stand back and let me do it. That's all you have to do. Stand back and watch. If Gideon had tried his own method, it had got obliterated. The, the odds were too great. 450 to 1, he's dead. But let me do it. Stand and watch, says God. Let me say, for my glory alone and by grace alone. And he does it. God. God is a God who will not take from you. He will not take. He will not take your efforts to chip in to be saved. We all need to be saved ultimately from our sin, our rebellion against him, our lack of concern for his glory. We need to be saved from death that awaits us all. But he will not let you help. He will not let you give to him. He won't take from you. But he delights to give to you. That's what God is like. A God who will not take from you, but delights to give to you. So what are we meant to do with all this? What are we meant to do with all this as we wrap up? Well, some of you might have seen we we skipped over a part of the story. Back in, back in Judges 7, one section we skipped over. And it was verses 9 through 14. And it tells us that, that amidst God's concern for his glory and his concern to save by grace alone, our only duty is to trust him. And specifically to trust his promises. To trust his promises. It, we're back on the eve of the battle and Gideon's scared. And so God says, just sneak down to the enemy camp. And so he does so. He takes his friend Pura with him as a bit of support. And they hear this, these two Midianite soldiers talking about this barley loaf that rolls down. He's had a dream, one of them. This loaf of bread has rolled down, hit the tent, and the tent's flipped upside down. It's a strange dream, but strange things happen in dreams, don't they? And the other, the other soldier gets it. He knows what the symbolism is. Ah, he says, we've had it. The barley loaf is Gideon. The tents are ours. And so we're going to get defeated. It's a very simple picture, isn't it? What's going on from Gideon's point of view is he listens. Well, he ends up worshipping. Verse uh, 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. That's what moves him to action. He goes up and says, arise, now we can go. I've had yet another promise. If you were here last week, you know, he's already had about 15. But anyway, here's yet another promise. We are going to win. But here's the thing, Gideon hasn't actually seen the victory yet, has he? He hasn't seen the Midianites dead or fleeing. He's just heard God's promise that that is what is going to happen. He believes it. And therefore, he acts. In other words, he trusts the promise before he sees its results. That's really crucial. He trusts the promise before he experiences or sees the results. He's given by faith in God's word. In many ways, what what he hears in this dream is a little gospel. It's a little kind of gospel for Gideon. You are going to win. I'm going to conquer. I'm going to save. And Gideon believes the gospel before he can see all the outworkings, the blessings, because they haven't happened yet. 
That is the Christian life. When you see that God is concerned for his glory and he works to save by grace alone, then your only call, your only duty, if I can put it like that, is to trust the promise. Because as of yet, you won't have seen everything that God has to offer. To put it in the language of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, we live by faith, not by sight. By faith, not by sight. Children, do you hear that verse? We live by faith. We trust. We, we don't yet see. To put it another way, we live by the ear, not by the eye. Week by week, we hear God's promises from the Bible as it's preached to us, as we read it at home. We hear, but we don't see. You never saw Jesus die for you. You never seen heaven. You can't see the Holy Spirit who dwells in your heart by faith. So how do we know they're true? Because of this book. This book tells us they are true. And I'm to trust they are true before I experience them. Let me just push this through a couple of ways. If you're not a Christian, some of you know the gospel. You know the good news of the Christian faith. You've heard it loads of times before. And you just, you just, oh, I can't do this faith thing. I just can't quite believe. It just doesn't quite seem true. I need to wait until it feels right and true and, and then I'll believe. No, no, you need to believe now. The reason you need to believe now is because one of the things you need forgiving of is your unbelief. You're waiting until you feel like it's true or God gives you some sign. Or, but your very problem is your unbelief. You need to trust before you see. You need to come to him and say, Lord, I'm not seeing this. But I see you promised it and I'm unbelieving. So forgive me. And he will. Your unbelief is part of what you need forgiving of. Bartimaeus, the blind man in the Gospels. He can't see Jesus. What does he do? He cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, let me see. He doesn't see Jesus until after he's cried out. Cry out now for mercy. God will have you. Because you remember, he says by grace alone, there are no qualifications. You don't need to bring him your faith or bring him your feelings that everything's true or bring him anything. The fact is you're, you're dead and lifeless spiritually. Come to him and he will bless you. A Scottish minister, 100 or so years ago, told the story of a, a congregation member who, who just couldn't get peace. He, he sort of wanted to become a Christian, but he couldn't quite work. And, and this, this, this congregation member said to him, look, I, I keep... Going and confessing to God, I'm a sinner, save me, I'm a sinner, save me, and nothing ever happens. And eventually the, the congregation member changed and started praying, Lord God, I don't even feel myself to be the sinner you tell me that I am. And he said, that's when I had peace. He emptied himself of everything. If you're not a Christian, just come. Jesus will not turn you away. He will forgive you. Come says God, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. No money, come and buy. Why? Because I'm going to give it. I will not take from you, but I will give you freely eternal life, forgiveness. And Christian, Christian, your whole life continues after that first turning to Jesus. Your whole life continues to be one dependent on God's grace received by faith. Your whole life needs to be like Gideon outside the tent. You know you've got all these things to do. I talked about mission and the battle for holiness. You feel like you can't do them. And the fact is you're right. 
You are powerless. 450 to 1. The devil. You go one-on-one with the devil, you're just going to lose. Sin at times will feel far too powerful for you. There'll be some things you just can't break out of. Anger that burns and you just cannot stop it. You know you're meant to forgive, but you just won't. They are all too strong for you. So what do you do? Despair? Give up? No. You listen to the promise. Think about the evangelism one. God says, makes the promise, for example, just plucking one almost at random. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel message. So when people hear the gospel message, that is what saves people. I have to trust that that is how God saves people before I see them saved. So I mean, it's obvious when you think about it. So I have to preach the gospel to people or get them to hear the gospel preached before I see any results. I trust the promise and then I go. And so too with holiness. Christian, there's loads of things that God says about you. He says, you're my son or my daughter. The Lord Jesus says, I dwell in your hearts by faith. God says, I've poured my spirit into you. He says, you're dead to sin and alive to God. And we say, no, yeah, but no, oh, I don't know if those are true of me, to be honest. I don't feel like a son or a daughter. I don't feel like Jesus is living in my heart by faith. Hear it again, by faith. I don't feel like the Holy Spirit is there. I don't feel like I'm dead to sin. I feel enslaved to sin. And therefore, we don't do anything. We won't fight the battle. We get enslaved further and further into the sort of, we sink further and further rather into the slime. Why? Because we don't believe God's promise. This is true. This is true. You are full of the Spirit. You are indwelt by the Lord Jesus. You are free from the power of sin. And we say, no, I'm not going to believe that until I experience it. And and God says, no, it goes the other way around. You believe it and then you'll see the fruit. But the belief comes first. And one of the devil's traps is to say to you, you may not claim any of those promises, any of those truths about yourselves, any of those identities until you see enough fruit to justify it. And as he preaches that into our ears, it just kills us. (laughs) Absolutely kills us. Because we're trying to live by sight, not by faith. We see the addiction to porn. We see the endless anger. We see the bitterness that dwells within us. That's what we see. And because we're so tempted to live by sight, not by faith, we therefore think, well, I'm, I'm dead, I'm lost, I'm stuffed, I can't make any progress. God says, no, all these things are true of you, believe them. And underneath, most fundamental thing to believe, as we say every week, really, is that God is for you. If you come to him empty-handed, if you say, yes, you alone can save, that's how you learn to love him. Think of a baby. Let me close with this. Think of a baby. How does a baby learn to smile? Okay, mum, one of the beauties of the, the church. We've had so many new babies born. Can't think who's the, who's the newest baby in Christ yet. I'll get it wrong if I guess and I'll get in trouble. But uh, let's go to Levi Quinton. He's pretty little. We're going to baptize him soon. Little Levi Quinton. Quinton. How has little Levi learned to smile? He, he wasn't born smiling. It took him a few weeks. I'm sure he's very advanced. But the way he learned to smile is because Sally, his mother, looked at him and smiled and smiled and smiled. And when Sally was too exhausted and needed some sleep, then his father picked him up and smiled and smiled and smiled. Not because not Levi had done anything. Washed the dinner, you know, washed the pots, made dinner. Levi had done nothing. To be honest, he's cute, but he was probably a total pain. <laughs> Kept them up all night, he's a baby. But they smiled and smiled and smiled. And one day, he smiled back. Only when you realise that God is smiling at you, will your heart warm up, heart warm up to smile back.
That is what gives you power for the battles, the battles for mission, the battles for holiness. God is for you if you come empty-handed in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we praise you for your kindness uh, to us and your grace in the Lord Jesus. We pray that we would live by grace alone. For those outside the kingdom at the moment, we ask that in your mercy, uh, you would allow them to believe. For those inside who've fallen into a pattern of despair, wake us up, we pray, and help us to trust in your goodness to us and the truth of your promises. Make us a people who live by faith and not by sight, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.